Oh, Jesus, thank you so much for time together this morning. What a privilege it is just to gather and um, to worship you together through song, God, to worship you together through just conversations and um, hanging out with our friends. And I pray now that as we open your word, that you would just speak to us through it. God, we believe that, um, God, we believe that your word does that. We believe that it never returns void. We believe that it changes hearts and lives. And so I pray that as we talk about it, as we open it this morning, it would do just that. Um, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a little kid, uh, my parents, um, they gave me a name. Well, they, that was before when I was a little kid, when I was a baby, or maybe even beforehand. I'm not sure exactly how it worked. But they gave me this name, Zachary. And when I was a little kid, they gave me a card that said Zachary in all caps across the top. And then right under that, it said, remembered by God. That's what my name means. That's what Zachary means. And so they gave me this card, and I remember they sat me down on my bed, and they said, hey, this is what your name means. This is why we named you Zachary. It means remembered by God. And so whenever you're having a hard time, whenever you're feeling alone, whenever you're struggling with something, just go over to this card and read it and remember that God remembers you, that he's thinking about you, that he loves you, that he cares for you, even when you might feel like nobody else does. And so I took that card, and I taped it on my mirror in my bedroom, and it, it sounds cheesy, but it totally worked. Every time I was feeling down, every time I was feeling alone, I would walk over and I would read that card and I would think, wow, even if I'm not feeling remembered by the people in my life, I'm remembered by God. And that is pretty incredible. My wife, Amy, and I started dating when we were 17. Um, and we spent the first year and a half of that dating process dating long distance. So we kind of dated over the phone. And some of you know what that's like. You end up talking about a lot of different things. All, all the things from like how many kids do you want and where do you want to live and what's your dream job to what does your name mean. And I remember asking her that one time and she told me that her name means beloved by God. And I thought remembered by God was cool. But beloved by God is much better, I think. Uh, <laughs> Because God's just like remembering me. I don't know how he feels, but he's thinking about me. But Amy, he, re he remembers and beloves her. He loves her. He thinks about her. And I, I just always thought how cool it was to, to look at names and to think about what they mean. And even when we named our son, Judah, his name means praise. And that was a really important part of why we named him that. And so names are interesting. They always have these various meanings. Most of them are positive, right? Some of them are kind of neutral. So my middle name is Weston, and Weston means of or deriving from the West. So it's just kind of a, kind of a descriptor, you know, kind of a logical name meaning there. Um, some of them are neutral. And then occasionally you'll come across a name that it's not neutral, it's not positive, it's just kind of plain bad, right? It doesn't really mean anything positive. And did you know that there is a character in Scripture whose name means arrogant, raging, turbulent, afflictor? arrogant, raging, turbulent afflictor. And this character is not just some random person either. She is one of the mothers of the Christian faith, a heroine of, of Jesus, of scripture, of everything that we believe in and study. She's a really important person. We're going to continue our character's study by looking this morning at Rahab, the arrogant, raging, turbulent afflictor. I bet she didn't have her name on her uh, bedroom mirror there to go look at every time she was feeling down. Some of you have heard her name before and some of you probably haven't, but Rahab was really one of the most important women to ever live. And I love, I love the song we just finished singing called Beautiful Things, and I love how it says that 
God makes beautiful things out of the dust, how he makes beautiful things out of us. And that is really the basis for this series that we're in called Characters, as we look at what some of God's people were really like. They weren't perfect people. A lot of times they weren't even close to being perfect people. They struggled. They did really bad things. They came from really bad places. And yet, when they said, God, just use me, he did. When they placed their faith in him and their lives in him, he used them in amazing, amazing ways. And we're going to look at the story of Rahab this morning. So Rahab lived in one of the rougher cities in recorded history, and it was called Jericho. Now, many scholars believe that Jericho is actually the oldest city still in existence in the world today. It's located in the West Bank. If some of you are familiar with that, it's this area just north of the Dead Sea um, in the Israel, Palestine, kind of that whole area. Uh, Jericho was originally founded by Herod the Great, and it was originally surrounded by this wall on all sides. It was this huge fortified city. And based on excavations that have been done since then, we can assume and we can know that the wall was actually at some places 35 feet high and 14 feet wide. So this is one of the most impenetrable cities in the history of mankind. And as scary as that wall was, what was happening inside the wall in Jericho was even scarier. Like I said earlier, at this point in history, Jericho was a really rough place. The people who lived there were Canaanites, which basically just means that they were from this region called Canaan. But part of the Canaanite way of life was devotion to a number of different gods. And many times these gods had specific dwelling places inside of various Canaanite cities. So you'd have a city, the people inside of it, they worshipped all of the Canaanite gods, but they had a specific god or goddess that dwelled, that made their home in this city, and they were kind of the top god or goddess of that particular city. So Jericho was the home of a goddess named Ashtoreth. Now, Ashtoreth was the goddess of power, love, and war. And a lot of times, the cities began to resemble or reflect the god or goddess that dwelled there. So you can imagine if Ashtoreth was the goddess of power and love and war, and Jericho began to resemble that, you can maybe imagine what it was like. It was kind of a rough place. It was a violent and dangerous place where the sex trade was not only legal, it was one of the most lucrative forms of commerce in the city. And it's right there in the middle of that depraved business that we find the main character in our story today, a prostitute named Rahab. But before I tell you more about her, I want to kind of set the scene for you of what life was like in the time of Rahab. So at some time around 1400 BC, that means about 1,400 years before Christ um, came on this earth. And the Israelites had recently been freed from slavery in Egypt by Moses. And some of you remember that story, right? Moses saying, let my people go. Um, and he goes over to, the, to Egypt and he tells the Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh doesn't. God sends all of these different plagues. And finally, Pharaoh realizes, I need to stop messing with these people. I just need to let them go. And so Moses goes out. God parts the Red Sea. He leads the people out of slavery. And he's supposed to be leading them into the promised land. But as so often happens, God's people, they get a little bit of taste of where he's taking them and they kind of think, ah, I got it. I'm gonna start doing this on my own. And so the people of God stopped listening to him, stopped taking his leading and even stopped taking the leading of Moses and they started to try to get to the promised land on their own. They started to try to do everything in their own power. But it didn't really work. They ended up spending 40 years wandering around the desert trying to find 
this place, going in circles and circles and circles until they realize we, this isn't working. We need to trust God again. We need to believe that he is going to take us where he said he was going to take us. When they finally decided to stop trying to do it on their own, and they finally decided to trust God again, he took them to the promised land. But there was one really big problem. People were already living in it. And to be more specific, Jericho, this fortified city, sat right in the middle of the promised land. And like I said earlier, Jericho was surrounded by huge walls on every side, 35 feet high, 14 feet wide. You can imagine the Israelites coming up to the side of this city, and here's the promised land, and they're like, oh, this seems like a problem. I don't know how we're going to get into this city, much less defeat the people that are in it. And on top of all of that, their leader had just died. Moses, the guy who had uh, taken them out of Egypt, who'd been there when the Red Sea parted, who'd led them all the way to the promised land, had just passed away. And it seems like the perfect time for the people of God to start to panic. But they don't. They decide instead to trust that God has brought them this far and that he won't abandon them now. So we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 1. So if you have your Bible or your phone, you want to turn there. The verses are also going to be on the screen behind me. I'm sorry if you brought your physical Bible and you're in this area over here. We've got some lights that are out. We're going to get those fixed soon. Um, But you can follow on the screen behind me. So Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So after receiving this beautiful promise from God, you can imagine the situation that Joshua's in, right? His, his leader, his kind of, Joshua was the right-hand guy for Moses. His guy, his leader has just passed away. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do, but he knows that he's supposed to lead these people. So God comes and he says, be strong, be courageous. I am with you. I will lead you. So God gives Joshua this pep talk. And as soon as Joshua gets this pep talk, he goes and kind of gives the same talk to all of the different people that he's about to lead. He reminds them of how far God has brought them up until this point and tells them of the promise that God has just made to him, that he is going to give them the promised land that he has promised them before. And as he continues to prepare his people for, what's to, for what is to come, he continues to prepare his army specifically for the battle that is to come, Joshua decides to send two spies into Jericho so that he can know exactly what he's up against. And so the spies set out from camp and they sneak into the city and guess who they meet? Rahab. Joshua 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, and he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So word about the spies travels pretty quickly. You can imagine that in a city that was this uh, bent on power and war and fortified like that, they had people outposted on all different places of the wall. So most likely, a person in the Jericho army saw these two spies sneak in. They saw them go into Rahab's house, and word travels pretty quickly, and soon the king knows that they're there. Verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men 
who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So the decision here for Rahab, to me, it seems fairly obvious, right? She is just this prostitute living in Jericho, and these two random guys come into her house, and now she hears that they're Israelite spies. And her king, the place where she's lived probably her entire life, the person that she answers to at the highest level, the king of Jericho, tells her, bring these men out so they can be dealt with. I think I would have followed the king's instructions exactly. I think I would have taken them out of my house. I would have presented them and said, my bad. I didn't know who they were. Here they are. Kill them. Do whatever you want with them. And not only out of fear for my life, but think about it. Rahab's a prostitute, right? Maybe she's hoping to curry some favor with the king. She doesn't have to live this way anymore to provide for her family. I mean, she could have seen it as a nice possibility to maybe move up in the ranks of people there in Jericho. But that's not what she does. Look at verse 4. But the woman who had taken the two men... But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Wow. Not only does she not give the men up, she hides them. Not only does she hide them, she lies to the king and to the king's men to get them to go out the wrong way and follow the spies who had never even left. Why on earth would she do this? Why would somebody who has so much to lose, possibly even her life, betray her country, her city, her king, her gods, all for two guys that had just come into her house to spy on the city in which she lived. Why would she do that? Well, we find out in the next few verses. Verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Siho and Og and two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Listen to this. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Listen to that line again. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Below. That is a big, big statement from Rahab. Remember two really important things about her, right? The first thing is she's a Canaanite. That means that she worships the Canaanite gods and goddesses. She has spent her entire life raised to think that the only real gods and goddesses are the ones that the Canaanites worship. She is a part of a completely different and opposing religion than the two men who sat in her house that night. But she heard about this other God, and then she met these two guys that worship him, and that's all it takes. That's all it takes to Rahab. She leaves behind everything she's ever worshipped before and says, your God is the God of heaven and earth. That's some amazing faith. You know, there are men and women after Jesus came to earth who walked with him, who talked with him, who spent years with him, and who never had faith like that. 
Rahab spent her entire life being indoctrinated and under gods and goddesses and spent her entire life in devotion to them, worshiping them day and night, even worshiping them with her business. And yet, all it took was one encounter with God and some of his people, and she said, this is the real thing. What I've been around is faith. This is the real thing, and I'm placing my faith in that. The second thing you need to remember about Rahab is that she's a prostitute. She really needed the most powerful men in Jericho to like her and to trust her in order to make her business a success. But when she decides to place her faith in the one true God, she not only leaves behind everything she's ever worshipped, she leaves behind everything that she's ever known, everything she's ever done, her business, her livelihood. She leaves that behind too. Something pretty incredible happened when God changed Rahab's heart. When she saw who he really was and placed her faith in him, she left behind what she did and who she worshiped. Basically all she'd ever known to begin following this God. This pagan prostitute placed her faith in God and it changed her entire life and the lives of her family too. So here she is up on the rooftop with some of the most wanted men in Jericho making one of the most beautiful statements of faith in all of Scripture. And now she makes her faith incredibly, incredibly real. She places her life and her family's life into the hands of God's men. Verse 12, now then, Rahab said, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will separate, excuse me, that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So Rahab does exactly what the men ask of her, verse 15. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived on was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return and then go on your way. Rahab, in the meantime, begins to bring all of her family into her house to prepare for what is to come. And then she waits. She places her life and her family's life in God's hands, brings everybody to her house, and then just waits and trusts that God is going to take care of her. At the same time, the spies wait for three days as Rahab has instructed them, and then they go back to report to Joshua what they'd seen. Verse 24, they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now with this great report from the spies, it's time now for Joshua and his people to advance toward the promised land. So he gets everybody together, he gives them one last kind of pep talk, and he crosses the Jordan River into the promised land for the first time. They set up camp right outside the city of Jericho, and God tells Joshua his plan for how he's going to defeat the city. And some of you know the story. It's one of the odder, weirder stories in Scripture, the way that God decides to give his people this land. But this is his plan that he tells Joshua. March around the city once a day for six days and take with you seven priests with trumpets who also march around with you and blow their trumpets. You do it once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around it seven times, blowing your trumpets, and then at the very end, everybody shout at the top of your lungs, and I'll give you the city. <laughs> you imagine what you'd be thinking if you were Joshua at this time, right? You're like, God, you said never fear. 
You said, be courageous. You said, I will always be with you. I got the army together. I told them. I promised them. You're going to give us this land. You're never going to leave us. You're, you're going to make a way for us. You want me to go tell my men, the people in my army, that we're going to march around the city uh, once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day and the walls are just going to fall down? <laughs> That's what you want from me. And God said, yes. And so Joshua said, okay, I believe you because you have led me this far and I know that you won't forsake us now. So they do this day after day for six days. They get up in the morning. They put all of their gear on. They walk around the city once. They blow their trumpets. They go back. They go to sleep. They wake up. They do it again every day for six days. We pick it up on the seventh day, Joshua 6, 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Listen, only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Put yourself in this moment for a second. Everything has been leading up to this for the past week, really for the past 40 years since these people had been let out of Egypt. They've been traveling toward the promised land for the past 40 years, going in circles for a while, but now they're on the right track. They'd marched around this city every day for six days. Now it's the seventh day. They're on that seventh lap. The trumpet's blowing. They're shouting, Joshua, in the middle of all of this chaos, in the middle of the biggest moment of his life and of all of those people's lives, he is able to shout just a couple of instructions to them. And do you know what he tells them? Spare Rahab and her family because she hid the spies that we sent to them. Even in the middle of all of that, God is concerned about his girl, his girl that has placed her faith in him. This pagan prostitute who encountered God's men, who encountered God himself and said, I believe you, I trust you, I place my faith in you. In the middle of this crazy moment, God through Joshua says, remember Rahab. Remember Rahab. And they did exactly that. Verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Rahab and her entire family were saved and she went to live among the Israelites. This is a really incredibly important verse because it means that this pagan prostitute became a part of God's people. He didn't just save her from the destruction of her city and then just kind of let her go. He brought her, he adopted her into his family. And I want to point something out to you. Rahab isn't the only non-Israelite to be a part of God's people either. Scripture tells us even in the Old Testament that a mixed multitude left Egypt with the Israelites and ever since then people like Rahab, Ruth, Uriah, Tamar, on and on and on have been a part of God's people. I often get asked the question, why would God only allow the Israelites to be his people in the Old Testament? Why would he only save them? And I simply answer, he didn't. Yes, he used the Israelites to announce himself to the world, but his plan has always been for all people. His family has always been made up of all 
nations. His people are people who have placed their faith in him, no matter who they are or what they've done, no matter if they were a pagan or a prostitute or anything else, no matter where they came from, no matter who they worshiped before, when God had an encounter with them and they said, yes, I believe you are who you say you are, and I place my faith and my life in your hands, they became a part of his family. It's the same thing that happened to me and to many of you that are sitting here today. You had an encounter with God at some point in your life, and you said, God, I'm going to place my faith in your hands and my life in your hands. In fact, this pagan prostitute not only became a part of God's family, she became a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 records the line that Jesus came from, and check out who made it in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, on and on and on until they get to Jesus. There is Rahab, right in the middle of the line of Jesus. Rahab became a heroine of the Christian faith, and her faith was something that has been admired by God's people for generation after generation since then. In fact, Matthew 1.5 is the only place that Rahab makes an appearance in the New Testament. She's also in Hebrews chapter 11, commonly known as the Hall of Faith. This is the chapter in Scripture where basically the author of Hebrews lists all the heroes and heroines of the faith mentioned for their great faith. And listen to Hebrews 11.31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were unbelieving. I love love how she's still called the prostitute. (laughs) In this verse, it's kind of rough. Like, she can't shake that, you know? Doesn't matter where she goes. She's in the line of Jesus, but they're like, oh, the prostitute Rahab? No, there's another Rahab. You mean the prostitute Rahab, right? That's who you're talking about? Even after leaving all of that behind, her past, her past is still a part of her story. And I think that's really important because it's true of all of us. We may leave our past behind. God may completely deal with us and change us and make us new, but who we were is still a part of who we are. It's still a part of our story. But the most beautiful part is that in the hands of God, our past becomes part of showcasing his beautiful glory and love and grace, a part of his story of redemption and restoration to the world around us. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that all of this power, all of this glory, all of this love and hope and grace is not from us. It's from God. We're just broken pieces. We talked about that a few weeks ago if you were here. We're just broken pieces put back together by the master potter. But on this side of heaven, we've still got cracks. We've still got blemishes on the outside. None of us are perfect. We still have stories that remember who we were and where we've been. But those cracks in our jars are often the very thing that God uses to introduce, to shine the beautiful light of his grace and hope and love through. If it was just some perfect jar, if it was just some unblemished person, how does God get glory from that? It's just like, oh, that person's always done it, you know? They've always been in charge. They've, they've always done things right. They've never really been in trouble or anything like that. But God doesn't do that. He picks people 
who are hurting, people who have struggled, people who are broken, like every single one of us in this room. And he puts us back together. And then through those cracks, through our past, through our stories, he shines his beautiful light of grace and redemption. Think about the conversation that Rahab must have had after she joined the family of God. Right after the walls of Jericho come down, the people of Israel come in and they wipe the place clean and they enter the promised land and Rahab and her family are just kind of over here in this corner watching all of it, right? And I'm sure somebody was like, hey, I, I don't think I've seen you around here before, right? Are you new? What's your name? I bet she was like, yeah, my, my name's Rahab and I am new. Well, where did you come from? Well, I was a, I was a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho, <laughs> But that all changed. When I placed my faith in God, I trusted my life and my family's life to him. I left behind everything I did and everything I'd ever worshipped. I walked away from everything and everyone I have ever known because I knew that God was going to take care of me. They were like, wow. Wow, they, he, he led us out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea, and I still don't have that kind of faith. <laughs> she trusted him. She believed him and what he said. Wow, what a story. What Great faith, and what an even greater, amazing God. God shone his light through the life of a pagan prostitute, and he wants to do the exact same thing through you. He wants to use you to tell his story of redemption and restoration to the people and the world around you. But it may be time for you to leave something behind, something you've been holding on to, for a while. Just like God called Rahab to leave behind what she was doing and who she was worshiping, most of us have things that we need to leave behind, things that we need to walk away from. For some of you, you need to leave behind what you're doing. It could be how you're making money, like Rahab. You know what you're doing isn't what God has called you to do, but you just haven't been able to trust him enough to walk away from it yet. Maybe it's something that you do to escape. Maybe it's drug or alcohol abuse, porn, gossip, sex, overeating, TV, whatever. Anything that you run to when life gets difficult, instead of running into the arms of Jesus, it's something that you need to leave behind. For some of you, you need to leave behind something that you're worshiping. For Rahab, it was her false god that she'd worshiped her entire life. You might be thinking, this part doesn't really apply to me. You're probably saying to yourself, I'm at church talking about Jesus right now. Of course, I don't worship any false gods, but it's just not true because our world is full of false gods. These are things that tell us if we just place our trust in them, everything will be okay. Your false god could be money. If I just get enough of it, I'm going to be secure. If I just have enough, I can provide for my family. I'll never have to worry about anything. If I can just place my trust and money, it's going to take care of me if I can just have enough. Maybe your false God's a relationship. Maybe you've believed and tried to get the things that you need from God through somebody else in your life, through a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a partner or a spouse or whatever it is. You've said, that's where I'm going to find life. That's who I'm going to trust to provide everything that I need, but it hasn't. Maybe your false God is just stuff. Maybe you just like to accumulate. You always have to have the new thing. You drive the nice car. You live in the big house. And there's nothing wrong with having stuff or having money. But when it becomes the thing that you place your trust in, 
then it becomes a problem. When you're trusting in it more than you're trusting in God, it may be something that you need to leave behind. It could be power. It could be knowledge. This is one that trips a lot of us up, I think. There's nothing inherently wrong with knowledge. I'm not one of those pastors that tells you that you need to check your brain at the door in order to be a part of a church or to think about Jesus or to to think about faith. No, it doesn't work like that. Jesus never said that, and neither will I. But the Bible is very clear that pursuing knowledge as an end in and of itself Placing your trust in it to save you, it doesn't work. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Just chasing the accumulation of knowledge without ever placing your love and faith and trust in Jesus, you're going to fall short. I don't know what you're doing or you're worshiping that you need to leave behind this morning, but I bet, I bet as I talked and I gave some examples, something came to your mind something that you place your trust in instead of placing your trust in, in Jesus, something that you, you run to instead of running to Jesus when things get hard. I bet there is something in your mind right now that you're feeling like you need to leave behind. But the question is how? How do we begin the journey of living by faith in Jesus and leaving those things behind like Rahab did? Well, I think we can learn a lot by the way Rahab did it. You see, Rahab didn't try to do everything herself. She didn't meet the spies from Israel and then send them on their way and then try to go assassinate the king of Jericho. She didn't try to knock down the walls herself. She didn't gather an army and try to go up against her home city. No. What did she do? She placed her faith in the hands of God, gathered her family, waited in her home, said, God, I trust you. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know when they're going to come. I don't know where you're going to take me, but I'm here. I'm in your hands. And I believe that you are going to take care of me. She placed her faith in God, placed her life in his hands, and then watched God work. Like I said, I don't know what you need to leave behind today, but I do know it just starts with a simple admission. A simple prayer that says, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. I'm placing my faith and my life in your hands. That's a prayer that I find myself praying time after time, day after day. Every single moment, I realize more and more that I need him, that I can't live this life on my own. And one of the ways that I've seen that prayer be most effective is when I pray it alongside one of my brothers or sisters in Christ. When I come to someone that I trust and that I love and that I know loves me and I say, this is something I'm holding on to that I need to leave behind, would you just pray with me about it? I just ask God to help me leave it in the past and ask me to help him trust him more. There's power in that. There really is. And so we want to give you the chance to do that, just that, this morning. We're about to stand, and the band is going to play. And for many of us today, God is, God's calling us to take that step forward, to leave something behind. And I want to give you the chance to start that process just by praying with someone. We're going to have some people in the back. I'm going to go back there as soon as I finish. I'll be back there as well. And if, if you just want to start that journey today, you want to take a step back there, pray with someone and said, here's something I need to leave behind. Here's something I need to leave in the hands of God. Could you just pray with me about it? We're going to have people back there that would absolutely love to do that. And look, I know, I know this isn't easy. I know it's not something that is fun or exciting when you think about getting up in front of people and walking to the back. People will know that you're dealing with something, know that you need to leave something behind. It can be shameful. It can make you feel guilty. It can make you feel upset or nervous. But I want you to know that none of those things come from God. 
God sees you exactly the way you are, and he loves you for who you are. And he's not calling you to leave something behind because it's going to make him love you more. He's calling you to leave something behind because he loves you too much to watch you keep carrying it. He doesn't want that for your life anymore. He wants to see you free of that burden and walking in the freedom and life that he has promised. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna stand and sing together. And if you'd like to, I'd love to see you back there and pray with you and just ask God to help you leave whatever it is you need to leave behind. Let's pray. God, you are the great master potter. You are the one who puts the broken pieces of our lives back together. You're the one that takes the pieces and like we said last week, makes them masterpieces, God. In your hands, anything is possible. In your hands, a pagan prostitute becomes a heroine of the faith, a mother in the line of Jesus. If you can do that with Rahab, God, what can you do with us? We are yours. We place our lives and our trust in in your hands. And God, whatever it is that you're calling us to leave behind this morning, whatever it is that you're calling us to take off of our shoulders and lay it down at the foot of the cross so that you can deal with it and we can stop trying to deal with it anymore, if it's something that we do or something that we worship or anything else about us that you're calling us to leave behind, I pray this morning that we would we would just step out in faith, maybe walk back there and pray with someone and ask you to take those things away. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.